Trust is an essential ingredient to the recipe of life. Though we may not always be aware of it, our lives are filled with a series of assessments and pronouncements on the trustworthiness of the people we encounter. Do I trust my bank with my money? Do I trust my friend with my secret? Do I trust my parents with my development? Do I trust my spouse with my heart? Do I trust my teachers with my mind? Do I trust my government with my freedom? Do I trust my doctor with my health? Do I trust my barber with my hair? A non-issue for most of us during these times of isolation. Do I trust my teenager with my car? Do I trust my babysitter with my kids? Do I trust myself with my future? In life, we are constantly and consistently forced to evaluate just how worthy of our trust the people in our lives actually are and with what they can actually be trusted. As one modern leadership guru has written, trust is the glue of life. It's the foundational principle that holds all relationships. And that leaves us with a question. How do we evaluate this intangible quality in people? Well, if I was to ask you right now to think of the person in your life that you trust more than anyone else, after you'd thought of that individual, if I then asked you to describe how they became so trusted in your life, how would you answer? I'm guessing you'd say something like, they proved it over time. They earned my trust. You see, we learn to trust people by watching them. We study their actions and we experience the consistency or inconsistency of their dependability. And as we study the people around us, we're asking ourselves diagnostic questions, whether we realize it or not. We ask, them, we ask ourselves questions like, you know, do they come through more often than not? And do they have our best interest in mind? And if they do, over time, our trust flourishes and the relationship grows. Each and every Christian has a similar but far more important relationship to evaluate. We all must ask ourselves, do I trust my God? Do I trust him with my life? Do I trust him with my death? Do I trust my God with my future? Do I trust my God with my salvation? Do I trust that he will never leave me nor forsake me? Do I trust that he works all things together for good? Is the God that we serve and worship worthy of trust? Now, normally I might say that that last question almost sounds irreverent, but I think it's one that the Bible, God's own word to us, encourages us to ask and demonstrates God's people asking in its pages. And so I ask it again. Is the God we serve and worship worthy of trust? Has he demonstrated dependability? Does he have our best interests in mind? The implications of how we answer that question are immeasurable. And so we all need to consider it very, very carefully and, and answer it honestly, even if only to ourselves. And in Genesis chapters 40 and chapters 41, we're going to find a, a snapshot from the life of Joseph that prompts us to ask and answer a version of that question. More specifically, can God be trusted even when he seems absent? Now today, I want to read the text in its entirety before we, get, we begin our study of it together in just a moment. But because of its length, I've recruited some help from within our church family. And so let's follow along with them as they read for us Genesis 40 and 41. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master, the king of Egypt. 
Pharaoh was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. After he had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were being held in prison, had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. When Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. So he asked Pharaoh's officials, who were in custody with him, in his master's house. Why do you look so sad today? We We both both had had dreams. They answered. But But there there is no no one one to interpret interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. He said to them, In my dream, I saw a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three branches. As soon as it budded, it blossomed, and its clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and put the cup in his hand. This is what it means, Joseph said to them. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to when you were his cupbearer. But when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in this dungeon. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given a favorable interpretation, he said to Joseph, I too had a dream. On my head were three baskets of bread. In the top basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. This is what it means. Joseph said, The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Now the third day was Pharaoh's birthday, and he gave a feast for all his officials. He lifted up the heads of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in the presence of his officials. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position so that he once again put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had said to them in his interpretation. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. When two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly and gaunt, came up out of the Nile and stood beside those on the riverbank. And the cows that were ugly and gaunt ate up the seven sleek fat cows. Then Pharaoh woke up. He fell asleep again and had a second dream. Seven heads of grain, healthy and good, were growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads of grain sprouted, thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven healthy full heads. Then Pharaoh woke up. It had been a dream. In the morning, his mind was troubled, so he sent for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, Today I am reminded of my shortcomings. 
Pharaoh was once angry with his servants, and he imprisoned me and the chief baker in the house of the captain of the guard. Each of us had a dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream, and things turned out exactly as he interpreted them to us. I was restored to my position, and the other man was impaled. So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I cannot do it. Joseph replied to Pharaoh, But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile. When out of the river, there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. After them, seven other cows came up, scrawny and very ugly and lean. I had never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. In my dream I saw seven heads of grain, full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them seven other heads sprouted, withered and thin and scorched by the east wind. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven good years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain, scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of a great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered, because the famine that follows will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning, wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt, so that the country may not be ruined by famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials, so Pharaoh asked them, Can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. 
you shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On, to be his wife. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the fields surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph by Asenath, daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and my father's household. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all of the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt there was food. When all Egypt began to feel the famine, the people cried to Pharaoh for food. Then Pharaoh told all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. When the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all of the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe everywhere. Now to get our heads around this significant chunk of scripture, I want to consider this passage in two overlapping scenes. Scene number one we'll call Down But Devoted. Down but devoted. These two chapters describe Joseph having to endure unrelenting trials in his life and yet remaining unwaveringly faithful to his God. He's brought down, but he stays devoted. Chapter 40 begins with three words that force us again to look backwards in the text. Sometime later, it says. We would ask, sometime later after what? Well, in chapter 37, where we are first introduced to Joseph, a young man who, being his father's favorite child, is hated by his jealous brothers. They misunderstand him, mistreat him, and eventually, as we remember, they sell him into foreign slavery. Joseph ends up serving in the house of an Egyptian named Potiphar, and things go okay for a while. That is, until Potiphar's wife falsely accuses Joseph of trying to rape her, and he's thrown into prison. And there Joseph sits in jail until some time later. 
he's joined by the king's cupbearer and, and chief baker, which we read about today. But I want to ask the question, how long is some time later? Well, let's allow the passage to give us a timeline so we can better appreciate Joseph's hardship, the depths to which he was forced to fall. We're told Joseph's age at the beginning of the narrative in chapter 37, verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, it says, was tending the flocks with his brothers. And then near the end of our passage today, in chapter 41, verse 46, we're told his age again. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh the king. Of Egypt. So there we have our bookends, 17 and 30. We're talking 13 years of time, most of which Joseph spent in prison. And of those 13 years, 11 passed by with the simple label, sometime later. But then something happens at around that 11-year mark. These two new royal prisoners are added to Joseph's cell block. Chapter 40 tells us that they had dreams, and God, through Joseph, revealed their meanings. Joseph says to the cupbearer, the one that would not be killed, in verses 14 and 15, But when all goes well with you, remember me, and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh, and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Now, three days later, when, as Joseph predicted, the baker was executed and the cupbearer was restored to, uh, to Pharaoh's service, chapter 40 concludes with these disheartening words. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And then to make matters worse, the opening phrase of the next chapter says, when two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream. Joseph, sold into slavery, framed for rape, 13 years in prison, 11 of which the text doesn't even mention. And then finally, when it seems like he has a glimmer of hope, a contact on the outside through whom he may be able to right the injustice he's had to endure, he's forgotten. He's forgotten by the guy he miraculously helped. I've had some tough times in my life, some circumstances that I've had to endure, And I'm sure if we compared battle scars, yours may even eclipse my own. But, you know, on a scale of one to life is brutal, I'm not sure many of us could rival Joseph here. At 30 years old, this young man had been forced to endure the depths. And yet, amazingly, throughout this time, the text makes it clear that Joseph remained devoted to his God. He remained faithful to and trusting of the God of his family, in spite of being brought down time and time again. Consider chapter 40, verse 8, and the initial conversation between the two new prisoners and Joseph. They say to him, we both had dreams, but there is no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. After 11 years of rotting in a prison cell under false accusations, Joseph's knee-jerk response is to lift high the supreme power and knowledge of his God, confident that that same God will use him to help these men. A similar, almost mirrored situation is found in chapter 41, verse 16. But this time, it's Pharaoh, not prisoners, wanting his dreams interpreted. Joseph responds to his request. 
says, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. And so Pharaoh, in verses 17 through 24, describes his dream to the now cleaned up prisoner, Joseph, who again responds in verse 25. The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Joseph then lays out the God-given meaning of Pharaoh's dream, returning the spotlight again to God in verse 28. It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. And he outlines the plan that would save countless lives during the seven years of upcoming famine by saving food during the seven years of plenty that would directly precede them. And if there was any question in the room as to where this information, this insight, this brilliance came from, Joseph answers it clearly in verses 32 and 33. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God. And God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look, look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. You can almost hear Joseph saying, God, not me. God, not you. God, not us. Look for someone, not me, that's wise and can implement this plan that God, not me, has provided. And Pharaoh, being either so struck with Joseph's devotion or acknowledging the power of the God that Joseph was repeatedly pointing toward, he starts to sound like this ex-con in verses 37 and 39. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. Thirteen years of mistreatment, abuse, slavery, loneliness, and disrepute. And yet given the chance to shine in front of the greatest power in the known world, to potentially win back his reputation and perhaps to vindicate himself for good. Given that chance, Joseph points all credit to God, the one in whom he had complete trust. See, Joseph was brought down, but he remained devoted. You know, I think we do well here to pause and ask ourselves a potentially difficult question. In fact, I think the text demands that we ask this question of ourselves. When we face times of desperation and helplessness in life. Times were thrown down into the depths. How do we respond? We all know that it's one thing to say, I trust God when we're loved in the palace. It's another thing to say, I trust God when we're a decade in prison. Kara Tippetts was a wife, a mother of four, and author who died about five years ago of cancer in her late 30s. And while she was fighting her losing battle with cancer, with this disease, uh, Kara refused to be defined by her illness and considered every moment she had a gift and an opportunity to learn more about grace and about trusting God. She believed suffering was not an absence of beauty, but an opportunity to understand God's love on a deeper level. Near the end of her life, uh, Kara wrote this on her blog. My little body has grown tired of the battle. And treatment is no longer helping. But what I see, what I know, what I have is Jesus. He has still given me breath. And with it, I pray I would live well and fade well. 
by degrees doing both, living and dying, as I have moments left to live. I get to draw my people close, kiss them and tenderly speak love over their lives. I get to pray into eternity my hopes and fears for the moments of my loves. I get to laugh and cry and wonder over heaven. I do not feel like I have the courage for this journey, but I have Jesus, and he will provide. He has given me so much to be grateful for, and that gratitude, that wondering over his love, will cover us all. And it will carry us, carry us in ways we cannot comprehend. Kara Tippetts was down, but devoted. Joseph was down, but devoted. And I pray that we, brothers and sisters, would grow by the power of the Holy Spirit to be likewise devoted to our God in spite of our life circumstances. Now, as we know already from reading the text, Joseph didn't stay down, did he? No, he didn't. And so this tees us up for the second scene I want us to look at today. Well, the first scene was down but devoted. Scene number two is prospering by providence. Prospering by providence. Through his incredible rise from prison to palace, Joseph's life showcases God's sovereign workings behind the scenes and his trustworthiness through all of life. Joseph prospered by God's providential hand. We remember that as soon as he was brought up from prison and rightly interpreted Pharaoh's dream by, with God's help, uh, Joseph is given a new job. You know, the king says to Joseph in chapter 41, verses 40 through 44, You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and people shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word no one will lift hand or foot in all of Egypt. Note the idiom used at the end of that text, that passage, that no one will lift hand or foot in all the land without Joseph's say-so. We, we may remember that in his life to date, many people have lifted body parts against Joseph. Joseph's brothers had lifted their hands against him in chapter 37, verse 21, 22, and 27, three times. Potiphar's wife had lifted up her eyes literally against him in chapter 39, verse 7. But here we're told that never again would anyone anywhere lift up any body part against Joseph. Hand, eye, foot, or anything else. In fact, they wouldn't do anything without his agreement. Things have changed. In a single conversation with the king, Joseph goes from imprisoned and displaced slave to almost unrivaled ruler of the most powerful nation in the world. It's quite the new job. And Joseph is also given a new name in verse 45 essentially naturalizing the Hebrew as an Egyptian. Whereas Potiphar's wife had tried to use his non-Egyptian status as ammunition against him, pejoratively calling him that Hebrew, Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt along with him now accept Joseph as one of their own. Joseph is also given a new family. He's given a wife in that same verse and, and children in verses 50 to 52. 
It's no doubt a meteoric rise in prosperity from the lowest of lows to the highest of highs almost overnight. But in no way does this passage allow us to attribute that climb to anything other than the providential workings of God. God, though not always seen, was always working behind the scenes to bring these things about, to eventually bless Joseph, and through Joseph, his family, his nation, and eventually the whole world. Notice all the quote-unquote coincidences that occur in these chapters. In chapter 40, verse 1, it just so happens that two employees of Pharaoh are imprisoned at the same time in the same prison where Joseph was confined. Then in verse 4, the captain of the guard just so happens to assign them to Joseph's care. In verse 5, it just so happens that these two men each have vivid dreams on the same night and wake up disturbed. Then in verses 9 through 18 of the same chapter, the men trust Joseph with their dreams, and it just so happens that he's able to interpret them. In verse 20, it just so happens that all of this occurs a few days before Pharaoh's birthday, on which, it just so happens, the king is moved to release these two imprisoned dreamers, one to service and one to death, as Joseph had predicted. It just so happens. Finally, consider chapter 41, verse 1. Even the two-year amnesia of the cupbearer, you know, forgetting about Joseph and his miraculous predictions, is a fascinating coincidence. You know, we spoke of it earlier as adding to the depths to which Joseph was being forced to endure, and, and it certainly was that. But it was also God keeping Joseph in place to be released at the exact moment that would place him in the biggest spotlight in front of the most significant audience, elevating him to the highest prosperity available and to maximum usefulness. You see, God, though not always seen, was always working behind the scenes. It was prosperity by providence. God was at work. Think about it this way. Would Joseph have stood before Pharaoh without first standing in Pharaoh's prison? Would he have served the king without first having to attend to the king's prisoners? Would Joseph's eventual place of power have been realized had he not gained the favor and trust of the prison warden? Would any of this have happened if Joseph had not been falsely accused of attempted rape? If he had not been a slave in Potiphar's house? Would Joseph have ended up as the most powerful man in the most powerful nation of the world if he had not first been hated by his own brothers and sold into captivity? Would Joseph have ever ascended to a position that would eventually save countless lives if his father had not first been led to believe that he had lost his own? Would Joseph be remembered as he is if he had not first been forgotten for two years by the cupbearer? Would Joseph have become a favored story of God's people for millennia if he had not been first sinfully favored by his father? See, though not always seen, God was always working behind the scenes. Joseph rose to prosperity by God's providence, by God's design. And this is acknowledged by Joseph at the end of our passage in the naming of his two sons in verses 51 and 52. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. Now forgetting here doesn't mean not remembering. Instead, it means something like, God has enabled me to close that chapter of my life. 
It carries a sense of acceptance and and trust in God's care. The second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Notice that there's no denial of the suffering here. It happened. The trials happened. But as Joseph knew, God invites you and I to know as well. God is at work behind the scenes, even if he can't always be seen. And he can and will make us fruitful in spite of our hardships. Though he was down, Joseph remained devoted to a God he couldn't see, but completely trusted. It wasn't until he ascended in prosperity that God's providential workings could be seen. Like a quilt that in the early stages of sewing looks more like scraps of fabric and loose threads. But as it takes shape, its thoughtful patchwork is increasingly revealed for appreciation. And friends, that hasn't changed since the days of Joseph. God is still constantly working in varying degrees of visibility. He's there in our prosperity and our poverty, our thrills and our spills, our breakthroughs and our heartbreaks. In Psalm 23, David famously declares that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? How can he say that? For you, God, are with me. God was with David. God was with Joseph. And God is with you and I as well. And it's with that truth as the foundation, I want to leave us today with two complementary admonitions, two connected invitations that we all need whether we find ourselves in the prison or in the palace. And the first is this. When God is obvious, celebrate him. When he's obvious, celebrate him. When God's providence becomes clear to you. When you see the quilt developing, when he pulls back the curtain and allows you a glimpse into his workings, take time to celebrate that. I have to think that as Joseph named his two sons as the second most powerful man in Egypt, he was at the same time marveling at God's goodness and and worshiping him for his kindness. And so too should we. If you're experiencing a time in your life right now where in spite of the corona quarantine, or perhaps even because of it, you're seeing God at work in an obvious way. Take time to acknowledge him, to thank him, to praise him, and to celebrate him. In fact, I would suggest that if that's you right now, find a way to make that celebration tangible and concrete. Maybe write it down or email it to a friend. Journal about it, write a poem, call a relative. Maybe find a Bible verse that represents the providence of God you've been experiencing. And in the margin next to that verse, scratch a mnemonic note so that you'll come upon it again later. So you remember this time. Find a way to make this time of celebrating God's obviousness tangible. And this is important for at least a couple of reasons. First, it's because God's worthy of such thoughtful worship and celebration. He's worthy of it. But secondly, because we know both from our passage today and from experience that he won't always be so obvious. And we want to remember. And that brings us to the second related but distinct admonition. When God is undetectable, trust him. When he's obvious, celebrate him. But when he's undetectable, trust him. Those times will come. Some of you may be in the midst of one right now. Now we need to remember that that feeling as though God is undetectable isn't necessarily a mark of immaturity or weak faith. We find such declarations in the Bible. Consider, for example, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
How long will you hide your face from me? And we experience down times like this, don't we? Of course we do. But we're called to remain devoted, like Joseph did, to trust a God who has proven to be trustworthy. Listen to how that same psalm, Psalm 13, ends. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Notice that in spite of the seeming undetectability of God, the psalmist is determined to sing the Lord's praises anyway. To trust in a love that has never failed in the past. A salvation that is secure in spite of his experience and his emotion. And a litany of memories of God's past kindness in his life. When God is undetectable, we are to trust him. Trust him anyway. He's still at work. He's still with you. He still cares. He still hears you. So trust him. Your inability to perceive him at work in the moment does not negate the salvation you've already received. It does not negate the love you've had lavished upon you. And it does not negate the goodness he's shown you in the past. So trust him. If this is where you're at right now, if this is what you're experiencing in these days, I encourage you to take a stroll down memory lane and stop at some specific addresses. Perhaps your conversion, your baptism, a healing, an answered prayer, whatever it may be. Remember those times. Again, make it tangible somehow by writing it down or sharing it with someone. Those are memorial stones in our lives to God's trustworthiness and his unchanging character and his unfailing faithfulness. When God is obvious, celebrate him. When he's undetectable, trust him. Trust is an essential ingredient to the recipe of life. And as much as that's true with all of our relationships horizontally with the people around us, it's even more true in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. He invites us to trust him. His track record is pristine, and he is always, always at work. Brothers and sisters, the God we serve and worship is worthy of that trust. May God help us all, and all of us together, live lives marked by that reality.